0: Right, It is amazing. Are you amazed by it? Or has some of that amazement drifted away through the distractions of life? Has some of that amazement drifted away by the temptations that ensnare us? Has some of that amazement drifted away because we're so tired of trying to work for something God's already given us? As we look in the passage today, we're going to see amazing grace. But not just amazing grace that saved us way back then. Amazing grace that is an active, powerful force of God in our life today. So that's what we're going to be looking at in Titus chapter two, uh, verses eleven through fifteen. Uh, Titus chapter two, eleven through fifteen. And so um, we've been talking about Titus. We're in, we're in the about halfway through the, the series as we're getting ready for the fall, and the main theme has been over and over and over again: genuine saving faith must always show up in growing godliness. Genuine saving faith should and must show up in growing godliness. You cannot disconnect faith in Jesus, that at least not one you can bank eternity on, from a lifestyle of becoming more like Jesus. And so uh, last week, it turned the, turned the page to the practical implications of the gospel. Teach what accords with sound doctrine, meaning teach the sound doctrine being the gospel. Teach the lifestyle that flows out of the gospel of Jesus Christ being true in your life. And then he went through all the big categories. So basically the whole church, young and old, male and female. That pretty much covers everybody, right? Well, it covers everybody. I'll just tell you that. You, we won't make it a question. Uh, and so it, it came to the, the governing word of the, of the whole passage was self-control, 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 self-control. Can Can... The the Spirit's fruit of self control, not your willpower, can the Spirit's fruit of self control curb your appetites, curb your distractions, curb your, your desires in such a way that it allows you to focus on running after Christ? Self control. Can the Spirit's work in your life curb your appetites, and can you cooperate with the Spirit's work to curb your desires? To run after Jesus Christ, and so if you are young and maybe maybe you're single, can the Spirit's work in your life curb your appetites to run after Jesus Christ? Can it create purity in you? Can it create um, kindness in you? Can it create patience in you? Right, the kind of things that He's challenging them to. In your dating relationship, can the Spirit of God create self-control in you to? Curb your desires so that you continue to run after Jesus and you, not, you don't become obsessed or, or controlled by the relationship you have to this, this person. In your married life, um, if, you're, if you're married, can the Spirit's work in you curb your desires for autonomy, curb your desires for independence, curb your, 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 your desires for, for control and power that allows you to love your wife Love your husband and love them in the real way, not the Hollywood way. It's hard and we wake up ugly and grumpy kind of way. And yet we still love persevering love with each other through life. Right? Can the spirit do that in you? Yes, he can. Will you walk in the spirit in such a way that self-control marks your life? But then you'll wake up one day and you'll look in the mirror and you're like, who in the world is that old dude staring back at me? I don't feel like that old guy. I don't feel like I should have all these wrinkles and gray hair. Like, what has happened? But when you wake up and you see that, has the 1,000, 10,000 moments of little, nothing faithfulnesses that you invested over time, has it shown up in maturity? So you don't just look and see you've grown old. You look and you see, I've grown up. How did that happen? It happened in the ordinary moments that passed by, but you chose faithfulness in those moments. And if you chose faithfulness in those moments and you look in the mirror and you've grown up, not just grown old, then it's time to go back. Maturity and investment. It's time to go invest in the next generation. It's time to go jump in the lifeboat with the next generation and help them row to faithfulness that will help them row to maturity. All right, so that was last week. Very practical. Well, this week is tied exactly to that. And in fact, he kind of reverses his normal order. Usually it's like doctrine, 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 gospel, gospel, gospel. Here's what the gospel looks like. Well, he's reversed that here When you look at this text, it's practice, practice, practice Here's what it's like to be old, here's what it's like to be young Here's what it's like to be a man, here's what it's like to be a woman By the way, all of that flows from the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ And so he does theology, he does gospel As the reason, as the basis This passage is the reason or the basis Of how you can do 1 through 10 right? And so, um There is a part we didn't get to, and I don't like to sidestep the hard stuff because it's hard. We just ran out of time. There's a category of people that he addresses called bondservants or called slaves. Now, slavery is evil in every situation, but slavery is also different in every situation. So in the Roman world, somewhere between 30 and 40% of the population was enslaved. It was not an ethnic slavery. It was not an imported slavery. It was a slavery that flowed out of prisoners of war. The empires conquering and conquering and conquering. And some of those that were conquered, they would turn into to prisoners of war that would be slaves. Sometimes criminals would earn a sentence of slavery uh, as part of their criminal sentence. And sometimes people would sell themselves into slavery called a debtor's slavery, right, to pay off their debts. And, and so it is always evil, though there is somewhat a, a difference in that. One of the challenges or one of the knocks that sometimes the New Testament will get is it doesn't come out and condemn slavery. And so it's like, why didn't it do that? Slavery's evil. We know slavery is evil. Like God printed the image of, of God on every single human being. On the other side of that, what I would say is it never condones slavery. And when it speaks of slavery, it speaks of it in evil terms or in, in wrong terms. And so we get passages like Galatians 3, 27 and 28. Uh, for as many as you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So there's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And the cross of Jesus Christ completely equalizes humanity in every status and station of life. It equalizes them at the cross. Um, you have passages like Philemon, where he goes in and he says, "I would have been glad for to keep him with me." Philemon's a runaway slave that met Paul became converted, became a, a, a believer in Jesus Christ through Paul. And so Paul's like, I would have loved to just keep him, but I preferred not to do it without your consent in order that, that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own choice. For perhaps, listen to this, this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother. Right? And so the cross becomes the great equalizer of humanity. This is Chris's opinion based on this of, of why Paul and, and the New Testament chose to do it the way they did. So you have the gospel coming to the very first group of people. It is a first generation gospel. There isn't a believer anywhere in the empire except for the ones that flow out of these 12 men's ministry called the apostles. So Paul has a choice, right? He can attack the cultural issue of the day of slavery, which is 40% of the population, and he can lose, but he can die, you know, he can die for a good cause. And there would be no gospel, there would be no first generation of believers, no second generation believers, no third generation believers, and slavery would still exist. Or, Paul can sow the gospel far and wide throughout the empire, knowing something is true. Wherever the gospel goes, freedom will eventually come with it. So he can sow the seeds of the destruction of slavery by sowing the gospel, which he could never do by his one voice and his one life taking up that cause. Now, that may not be satisfying to you, but, but I think that is why he chose to drive the gospel. And everywhere the gospel goes, eventually freedom comes with it. And so that is why I, I, I think that, that that is how Paul did it. And so if you'll notice, there's two things are true. One thing is true, Christians have gotten this really bad wrong in the past. We have failed to live up to our understanding of God and our understanding of the image of God in people. We have failed. But another thing is true. Just about everywhere slavery has fallen, it has fallen by Christian passion. Men gripped by this gospel, carrying it to the implication of, I will fight for the, the ending of slavery within my country because I'm compelled by the gospel that has set me free. And so that's what I think is true. or uh, uh, The history part, that's what is true. But that, that's what I think is the picture we can look at. And so what the gospel does, though, that is radical and powerful In passages like this. Is it says. You can live free. Dignified. Eternally worthy lives. Satisfied in Jesus Christ. No matter what your condition. No matter what your status. And no matter what your life circumstances are. Even if it is as horrible as slavery. The gospel is so beautiful. That it can compel and empower. A whole different way of living. For a whole new freedom. And a whole new eternity. So that's. That that would be the part we didn't get to last week uh, and trying to give you an understanding of that. Today, built on last week, today is the foundation, the basis, and the reason. It's the theology behind how to live chapter uh, 1 through 10 out. And so if we do theology right, if we do theology right, what should it look like? If we get our doctrine right and we really believe it, what should it look like? It should look like worship, and it should look like obedience, It should look like worship, and it should look like obedience. Let's look at it as we read the text. Starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that the grace this passage speaks of would amaze our souls again. I pray the grace, the saving goodness of our God in our lives would compel us to run away from the ungodliness that grabs at us constantly and would propel us to run after the godliness, to run after the justice, to run after the self-control, to run after the, the purity that it's given us. Father, would you let grace amaze us, and would you let grace be this active, powerful force in our lives again, changing us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, grasping grace makes us zealous for godliness. Grasping grace makes us zealous for godliness. By grace, we have been saved, and the world is offered salvation. By grace, we've been saved, and the world is offered salvation. Now, in America, we have these two big systems kind of colliding with each other. And on one hand, you have the system of if you will make good choices and get an education and work hard and do the right things, then it will equal this thing called success. right? Now, look, some bad things can happen and we can fail miserably and things can go wrong. But generally, the formula is work hard equals success. And then you have another system, and this is not a commentary on systems. This is not one is good and one is bad and one is right and one is wrong. I'll leave that for you to wrestle with. It's, a, it's an analogy. The other system would be a more entitlement system. I deserve something, and so I deserve a certain wage. I deserve um, free education. I deserve um, certain privileges. I deserve health care. I deserve prescription drugs. Whatever the thing is, I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. And it's imported its way into our spirituality, hasn't it? If I work hard and I'm a good guy and I take care of my family, then the big guy upstairs and I have an agreement, and of course he's going to let me in. I'm a good person. I've worked hard. Or we have this other system play itself out. Well, if there is a God, of course he's going to let me in because he's fair and he's loving and everything's good and I'm pretty good and I deserve it. And then you run into this word in the text called grace. And grace says God's active goodness will be given to you, but it will not ever be given to you because you earned it by being, by working hard. He will not give you a drop of anything because you worked hard. He won't give you a drop. There will be no spiritual success because you worked hard. You know what else it says? You don't deserve one drop of it. I promise you you don't want what you deserve I promise you you don't want what you have earned with your life. You know what you want This thing called grace The saving goodness of God that you can't work for you can't earn and you could never ever deserve and yet he delights to give it to you You see you are a sinner And that sin has separated you from a holy God. And no matter how good you are and no matter how hard you work, all you are doing is digging a deeper pit of wrath that you're owed. But God was not pleased to leave it that way. Instead, he sent his son to the earth. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You walked in it. You were dead in your sins and trespasses and you wanted sin so bad and you did sin with all of your might. And so God sends his son to live a sinless and perfect life that you have to live, but you can't live. And he lived that perfect life and he died on a cross for your sins so that God could raise you up. With, and and he, was ri- he was raised from the dead on the third day so that God could raise you up according to his great love and his infinite mercy. That he could raise you up and make you this trophy of his goodness and his kindness and his grace in Christ Jesus for all the ages. Because it's by grace you have been saved. And so he sent his son who lived, died, rose again to now offer you the life of, of Jesus Christ. Not because you deserved it, not because you've earned it, but because he delights to give it to you. And if you will repent of your sin, if you'll repent of your self-efforts, if you'll repent of your entitlement attitude, and if you'll embrace the free gift of God that is a gift, he'll save you. All who call on the name of the Lord, he delights to save. But here's the thing. If that actually does something inside of you, if you have been saved by grace and then actually stunned by grace because the two go hand in hand, you're never going to want to... Enter heaven alone. You're not going to want to walk through the Christian life with Jesus hoarded inside your soul. And grace hoarded inside your soul. And never offered and extended to anyone else. We're saved by this grace. We're captivated by this grace. That's what salvation is. And so we need to... Delight to dispense to give or offer this grace to a world so desperately needy of it Let's look at it in the text for the grace of god has appeared For the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation for all people now that word for connects us back to one through ten It is the reason The basis or the foundation for all the practical stuff that he said we should do and he told us that was part of the christian life Well, the basis of that the reason for that is Grace is yours and grace is mine. And this grace has appeared. So for the grace of God has appeared to us. It's a theology that drives the practice. And, and, and it's a past, present, and future grace. If you notice, like, the, the whole sentence, uh, I'm sorry, 11 through 14 is one sentence long. And you know what the one subject of that sentence is? Grace. Everything you read in 11 through 14 ties itself back into the grace of God flows out of the grace of God So what is the grace of God? It is goodness and favor that is given to people who cannot earn it and do not deserve it Grace is God's goodness and favor or it is goodness and favor given to someone who cannot earn it and does not deserve it But in this passage, what specifically is grace? Grace Grace is the saving goodness of God given to a people who cannot earn it and a people who do not deserve it. And it's worse than that, isn't it? It's not just that we don't deserve it. We deserve a whole nother thing. We are enemies of God, the Bible says. We, we are hostile towards God in our minds and our hearts. We deserve eternal separation from God. That's what we deserve. And grace is the saving goodness of God given to you that you don't earn and you don't deserve. It's the exact opposite of what you deserve. It's not like kind of neutral and that's a nice little thing God gave me. It is like the exact opposite. What would you give a traitor who took up arms in rebellion against you? Would you give him your son? Or would you give him what they deserved? And that's grace. Grace. For God's goodness given to people who don't earn it, deserve it, and it is the main subject. And it is the grace of God has appeared. Well, now we're starting to get an understanding of something. What is this grace? It's not an impersonal force, is it? Grace has appeared. Now, the word for appeared is a very specific word. It is not just kind of a normal like word like we would use, this appeared or that appeared. It is a very specific word that referred to a God appearing. You know, Greeks had a lot of them. So one of the gods showing up on the scene, they appear. Or it would be the word for a king or an empire uh, emperor visiting. And so a high dignitary or a god appearing, and it's a very specific word that means that. And so now all of a sudden, grace has appeared. What does that mean? Grace has appeared in the visitation of humanity by God the Son, whose name is Jesus Christ. And if you notice it, like in the first part of the passage, grace appeared in the past. Jesus came and he manifested grace at his first coming. He showed us grace in a way that could be encountered. And then if you look just a verse later, another coming will happen. Another appearing will happen. That second appearing, what will it bring? The bright Dazzling glory of God that can be seen and encountered his first coming Shows us grace in a way that can encounter it. his second coming will unveil for us to see with without any Flesh suit in the way the blazing dazzling glory of God that is found in the face of Christ And that's what all humanity will see. That's what all humanity will bow before That's what all humanity will confess him as Lord right then in that moment Grace has appeared Grace has appeared Bringing salvation for all people. Now there's some textual wrestling. The simplest explanation of the text is this. Grace coming, Jesus coming, Jesus' work, the saving work of God, has brought the offer of salvation to all people. Jesus coming brings the legitimate offer of salvation to all people. Now that may be ethnic people groups or that may be individual people. But it probably includes both. And so we can make a legitimate offer of saving grace of God to every human being on the entire planet, no matter their situation or station in life. We can make a legitimate offer for them to repent and believe in Jesus. And if you have a theology that does not allow you to go to anywhere on the earth, to any human being on earth and say, Jesus died, rose again, and offers you eternal life, then you've got something wrong with your theology. Now, you might need to work it out a different way, and we we might have disagreements and discussions on the nuances of that. But if you have a theology that says saving grace is not offered, and and extended by the work of Jesus legitimately to the world, then, then you got some passages to wrestle with. Grace has come to offer to humanity. And you know what grace also does? It promises humanity will show up. Revelation 5, people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language will worship before the throne, declaring we are here because we were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's come and it's appeared to all men. And we can make the genuine offer to people. And not only can we, it's the only way. Now, God would have, it it would have been easier for God to say, angels, like, go tell people. These people are so botched up and jacked up and selfish and sinful. They're never going to get this message all over the world in time. Angels, just go handle it. But he didn't send angels and he didn't use skywriting. He saved you. Then he gave you a message. And now you, you, me, and the church of Jesus Christ are the ones who can now offer the grace of God to all men. And if we don't offer it, no one else is. He doesn't have a plan B for evangelizing the nations of the earth. It's you, believers, Who have been entrusted with grace, stunned by grace, to pass on grace, to extend the invitation of grace. And so one of the challenges we've had over a couple of year period is serve and share with two. Identify two people in your circle, two people that you run into on a regular basis and serve them and bless them and and host them in your homes and pursue them and then open up your mouth and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Bring the world that is, I can't touch the world, that's billions of people, to two people, two faces, two names, and pursue them with all your might. In our Be Intentional Challenge, we've put it another way, in our Be Intentional Challenge, what we've asked you to do is pray for one or two people over the next month. Pray for them to be open. Pray for God to be pursuing them. Pray for God to give you eyes for the right people. And then just invite them to a Sunday school gathering. Put them around other believers. Invite them to a Sunday school class. Put them around other believers. Invite them to lunch. Put put them around other believers. But the point is, is we have got to have the lost on our eyes and the lost on our heart. And I don't think we do anymore. And so the best way to do that is to put a couple of lost people, real people, real faces, real names in your eyes and real names in your heart. So that God can amaze us with grace again. And then compel us to offer that grace to other people again. So, by grace, we have been saved, and the world has offered salvation. Secondly, by grace, we hate sin, and we pursue righteousness. By grace, we hate sin and we pursue righteousness as we actively wait for the return of Jesus. And so, uh, I have found that it 's very easy for me to hate the way sin affects me. I mean I, I hate when people like dismiss me. I hate when people disrespect me. Uh, I, I hate when people reject me, right That feels awful. I hate the way sin affects me. I hate when I walk into a house, I I don't have this. Well, actually, I do. I have four of them. These roommates that leave these nasty, sticky, dirty dishes, didn't even have the courtesy to put water on them and shove them in an overflowing sink. Man, I hate having to live with people that are so selfish they don't clean up after themselves because I hate the way sin affects me. It's easy to hate the way sin affects me. You know what else I hate? I hate sin's consequences in my life. I just, I hate it when I lose my temper again and the whole house goes cold and we're all distant from each other and I feel all, you know, uh, shameful and regretful. I hate the way sin, I hate sin's consequences. I hate when relationships get distanced because of sin and, and you feel that tension. So easy to hate the way sin affects us. So easy to hate the consequences of sin, but you know what's hard? To hate my sin. To hate my sin the most. To hate my distance from Jesus the most. To hate my anger the most. To hate the way I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God the most. Do we hate sin? Grace is the power of God to hate sin, but it's not hating sin for its own sake. I I think we tend to stop there. Grace is the power for me to hate sin because it gets in the way of me running after righteousness. I hate sin because it stops my running to become like Jesus. I hate sin because it 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 so easily ensnares and entangles me from running the race with endurance. I hate sin because there's a righteous life to live and it's all up in the way of it. I hate sin because the goodness I desire to do, that I don't do, but the evil I hate, I do that anyways, Paul says. We hate sin because we love to live a life of positive righteousness and grace is the power for both. And so as we, we jump into the text, without doubt, we tend to think about grace in past tense, right? God, God's grace, it saved me. It's so amazing. It saved me. It's so It's so amazing. It brought me from death to life. Grace is amazing because of what it did in the past. And if this text does nothing else for you, a big, robust theology of grace does not stop in the past at the moment of salvation. A big, robust theology of grace makes it an active, powerful force in your life today to change you today. But then it doesn't stop there either. It's saving you right now, grace is. I know we don't talk in those terms, but grace is saving you in this very moment. And if it stopped, you'd be gone forever. We call it sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. But you know what? Grace will one day save you. It'll save you fully, and it will save you finally in the future. There's a blessed hope you're waiting on. This isn't it. It's not over. And so it's a past tense thing. We think about it, but no, it's a present power. It's a present force. It's still doing something. It appeared and it saved you. Now what else is it doing? It currently is training you. The word for training is the word that's used of of training a child. Right, so it's not simply an educational system that teaches you certain skills. It is a it is a parenting system that goes in and and through modeling and through power and through teaching and through it's training you, raising you up, growing you to be a certain kind of person. And so, it is the grace of God that is training you to what? To renounce. A certain set of sins to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly power, to reject and say no to the ungodliness that's part of your life. And so it is grace that teaches you to hate sin. It's grace that teaches you to reject sin in your life. And so it talks about ungodliness. The word for ungodliness is used positively a few verses later. You know, God, and then, I'm sorry, in the next phrase. Ungodliness, the opposite of which is godliness. So ungodliness simply means this. No reverence for God. It teaches you how to live a life, or it teaches you to renounce a life that has no reverence for God, or to put it in a way that's simpler for us. Grace teaches us to get rid of a life that is lived as if it does not know God. In chapter 1 it says, They profess to know God, but by their works they deny Him. Do you know what grace does in your life? It teaches you, to reject a lifestyle that looks like somebody that doesn't know God. That has no reverence for God. And then worldly passions. It's like, well great, I'm free of those. I can confine that to the stuff on the internet. I can confine that to, to running after sinful lust and desire, So, I'm good. No. Worldly passions are not simply the big stuff we don't do. Or maybe we do them and nobody knows about. Worldly passions... Or when I burn with a desire for anything this world offers more than I burn with a desire for Jesus Christ. And so I can burn with desire, and it looks really normal, but all I want is one more bedroom in my house. I can burn with desire, and it looks normal to everybody else, but all I really want is one more notch up the ladder of success. I can burn with desire, and it look very normal to everybody else. It's got to be fine. This is the way things are done. All I want is a new car. Anything in this world that grabs hold of my heart and I burn for it more than I burn for Jesus. I burn for it apart from Jesus as opposed to underneath my following of Jesus. That's a worldly passion. And now all of a sudden it's me. And it's you. And grace is the power to hate that stuff in your life. I think another way we get this wrong is we, we think of grace in the past, right? And it saved us. But another way we get this wrong is we think about the Christian life as, a, as this negative thing. It's what I don't do. It's what I don't believe. It's what I don't agree with. And it's what I don't practice. And so Christianity is filled with don't and don't and don't and don't. And we have decided we're good Christians if we don't. If we don't. Drink or drink too much if we don't smoke and if we don't cuss and if we don't run around if we don't 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 good Christians But grace has another thing to say about it. it is not simply a negative life to avoid It is a positive life to live Do you see that? It teaches you to reject the evil, to reject the bad. Why? Because it's teaching you to live a life of positive righteousness, to live a life of godliness. And so self-control, the, whole, the word of chapter 2, this is the fifth time it's been used or more in, in these 11 verses. It's going to teach you self-control, to curb your appetites and desires. Why are you curbing your appetites and desires? So that you can focus on running after Jesus. And self-control will give you that. To be upright, that is, you are justified to live justly. Same words. You're justified to live justly. You're justified to live a life that can't be condemned by legitimate charges against you. And then godly. If ungodliness is to live without reverence for God and to live like you don't know God, then what is godliness? To live with a proper weight and reverence of God. To live like he's real and you believe it. To live like you do know him. And so instead of professing to know him, your works deny him. You profess to know him and your works put him on display. Of course I know him. Look, I want to show you imperfectly because I'm in a flesh suit. I want to show you imperfectly. Here's what it's like to know God. Here's what God's kind of life is like. It teaches you to reject one kind of lifestyle because there's a better lifestyle available. And so there's this positive side. Let me read for you uh, Colossians chapter 3. Now you could read the whole thing and it's great. I'm going to just read for you two or three verses. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must forgive And above all, these, put on love, which binds everything together. And so what you would see if you read through Colossians 1 is you would see this principle operating. There's a negative to put off and a positive to put on. And this is a big counseling principle we try to share with people or just an intentional discipleship principle we try to share with people. You cannot simply take things away. You can't simply not do things. Something's going to fill the space. Something's going to fill the void. And so if you're putting off these destructive behaviors, if you're not intentional about it, you'll just put on maybe less destructive behaviors or different destructive behaviors. We call them sin. You'll just put on a different set of sins that's a little more acceptable to the group you're a part of. But if you will put off a set of destructive sinful behaviors and in their place put in healthy, God-honoring, people-serving behaviors, what you'll find is you've replaced what is evil with what is good because of the work of the gospel in your life. And that's what Colossians 3 is talking about. It says you have put off the old man. You are not who you used to be. And so what's the command? Quit living like you used to live. And so that's the whole radical difference between Christianity and the rest of the religions of the world. The rest of the religions of the world are work to be a better person, to be more pleasing to your God person. And the gospel says, I've made you a perfect person. Now start living like a perfect person. And so it says, you have put off all these sinful behaviors. And then he says, but you also put on a new man. You are not who you used to be. You are now a new declared righteous person. Look at who he describes you to be. You're chosen. Now we get the other side of the equation, right? You're chosen. You're loved by God and you're holy. That's who you are. That's who you are no matter what you've done this weekend. That's that's you no matter what fight you got into on the car ride over here. You are chosen, loved, and holy, and that's who you are. And Christianity says, I've declared you something, now go live that out. It's a whole different power structure for change. So what is this positive life God wants for us? Compassion. Do you show up with compassion in your life? Humility versus pride and arrogance. That's what positive righteousness looks like for your life, empowered by the gospel. Kindness Can you actively do good to the people around you be kind to the people around you? That is the power of the gospel That you can put on because you are have had good done to you that you didn't deserve by the grace of jesus christ Um, Meekness and patience. Can you bear with people now bearing with people is not forgiving them for sin? It's putting up with them because they're different or hard Can I just bear with people that are different from me and a little harder for me? Because God would dare to put up with me. and Bear with me. Can I forgive people? Because God would dare to forgive me in Christ Jesus. And then we just put it all together with this big umbrella category called love. Can I just live a life of loving people? Yes. Because you are a new person who's been loved by God. You are infinitely empowered to go love people in tangible, practical ways. Do I hate sin? Do I hate sin? Do I hate... My sin. My sin, not yours. Because I love running after Jesus, and sin gets in the way. Do I hate my soul being listless and unmoved by these truths? Yeah. Because I want to run after Jesus, and sin too easily ensnares me not to. I want to run after other people and love them well, and sin too easily ensnares me not to. Do I hate sin? Do I love righteousness? Do I put off and do I put on? Yes, I hate sin's effects. We've been together nine years now. Well, some of us. A lot of you are newer than that. Some of us have been together nine years. And that's nine years of hurts we've gotten to watch and carry together. Nine years of seeing people I love dearly be devastated by the sins and consequences of others. By their own sin and by their own consequences. And do I hate sin? I hate it with a passion because of what it does to people. Me and how it affects me loving and serving God and loving and serving other people. Do I hate my sin the most? And do I hate and grieve what sin does to other people? Not just what it does to me. Last step. It, it kind of repeats um, some of these principles so we won't have to go in, as in depth. By grace we are redeemed and purified to be the, tre- the people treasured by Jesus By grace we are redeemed and purified to be people treasured by Jesus. And so he repeats the positive and negative focus of the the last verse. And he just shows the how of it. By the way, the, the verse we didn't hit. Waiting on the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. How can I endure when it's hard? How can I endure when sin uh, grabs at me again. How can I endure when, endure when life becomes difficult and challenging and hard and disappointing and crushing and other people's sins against me? How do I endure? I actively and faithfully wait on Jesus, the blessed hope coming back, appearing with the glory of God, with brightness and accessible, but now it's accessible with, with this blazing glory that no man can stare at. Now I get to stare at it forever and I get to actively wait on the Not the wish that he'll come back, but on the confidence of his promises that he'll come back and everything will be right. So I can endure today, to pursue righteousness today, to do all of these qualities today because there's a day coming. When God comes, when Jesus comes back. And then he repeats the positive and negative. How does this grace happen? How does this grace take the negative and renounce it and the positive life to live in a present age not some future age how does it do that he gave himself for us the body and blood of Jesus is the ransom paid for your righteousness the body and blood of Jesus slain on a cross is the ransom he gave himself for us that is in our place he sacrificed himself gladly joyfully and willingly for the joy set before him and you know what the joy set before him was You people. Oh, my goodness. Maybe I should put it this person. What in the world is he thinking? Do you know what the reward of the suffering of Jesus is? You people. This person. Isn't that stunning? He would die in our place, willingly sacrifice himself for us and two things are true about that negatively obviously it teaches you know it removes our lawlessness it removes the sin that separates us from god but look at it positively look what it does it purifies us it fits us it makes us acceptable to god so that we become his treasured possession do you see that his own possession the word for possession is his, his rich possession we might call it his treasure first peter says it this way but you're a chosen race here we go again a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possessions that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and the light. You look around this room with all the failure and with all the weakness and with all the fitting and starting of our Christianity and with all the idiosyncrasies that are in this room. You know what you're looking at? The treasured possession of Jesus Christ. The reason he would suffer and die for the glory of God and to gather you together. To himself. And that's shocking. You're his people and you're treasured. And then the other thing that is true, these people will be zealous for good works. We're not carried away by worldly passions because we burn for the goodness of God to be displayed in the earth. We're not carried away by ungodliness. We don't let ourselves be swamped and out of control by our passions. We control ourselves. Why? Because we're zealots. But what are we zealots for? The God who saved us and purified us, working out his kind of life in the world that we live in today. Did you notice the present age part? It's so easy to think about the future age. It's so easy to think about Bible world and Bible land and Bible talk. It's so easy to miss. Christianity is about the power of God to put God's life on display in the present tense. Present tense of where you go to work tomorrow, not where you hope to work one day. Present tense of where you go home to and live with today. Present tense in the struggles and the fights and the challenges today. It is the power of God, the saving power of God for the present age. And you've been purified to be zealous for the goodness of God in the present tense not some future time, future place. Kids will get old enough for me to be patient. Kids will, you know, get to a certain place. Marriage will get to a certain place. Work will get to a certain place. And then I'll be zealous. Then I'll do it. No, you can burn for the goodness of God in your life right here, right now, whatever right here and right now looks like for you. Because he died and in your place. He took your cross in your place to make you zealous for these things. Could we please be done with a passive life? Could we please be done with a half-hearted Christianity? In the nicest way. You know I love you. Would you please get in or get out? Like go all in with Jesus Christ or go all out and quit playing Jesus games and follow Jesus with a burning zealous passion where people might actually think you believe the stuff. Zealous for good works. Not because I've worked myself up. Not because I'm at a fevered pitch. But because God purified me by the death and resurrection of His Son. And He made me His treasured possession. And I'm His treasured possession. And because I believe that and I grasp that, I get really excited about that. And I'm zealous for that. And then I want to go put that on display in the world that is scarred and scraped bare by the fall. And I want to go plant Eden everywhere I go. I want people to see God's kind of life everywhere I go. I want the people I'm in relationship to see it. I want the people that don't know me to see it. Because I'm I'm zealous about the gospel. I'm zealous about a grace that saved me. I'm zealous about a grace that is saving me. And I'm zealous about a grace that will save me. Are we zealous? Would anybody mix us up and confuse us for being zealous? For being too excited about this stuff? I hope so. I hope so. You're the treasured possession of Jesus. You're the reward for his suffering. You're his. And you're his not because you deserve it. You're his not because you're good enough. You're his not because you measure up. You're his not because you've done the things you're supposed to do in this life. You're his... Because he delighted to make you his. He, that's why. It's not because you're good enough, it's because you're his. A few practical things uh, as we wrap up. Have you received this gospel invitation? Have you received the gospel? The grace of God has come and it's appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's come and it's appeared to offer salvation to you. You were born dead in your sins and trespasses. And you gladly followed the course that 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 carried in your life. But God is rich in mercy. God intervened. God sent God the Son to die on a cross, to rise again from the dead, to offer you life. Have you turned from your sin and have you put your faith in Jesus? Not put your faith in church. Not your faith in doing good things. Not your faith in being moral and Looking a certain way. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Second, do you hate your sin and fight your sin? Oh, yeah. It's always the dreaded question on the essays, right? How? Why? It's that little bitty one-word follow-up that always kills you. Do you hate your sin? Oh, yeah. Do you fight your sin? Mm Mm-hmm. How specifically are you at war with your sin in your life? How specifically are you at war? You've got to put it off because there's something better to put on. Burning love, desire for Jesus Christ, right? Only a, a more compelling love will cast out a lesser destructive love. And so are you cultivating love for Jesus by staring at Jesus, talking to Jesus? Are you confessing sin? Are you repenting of sin? Are you searching for sin in your own life? Do you hate it when you find it? I know you are too young, Lord of the Rings. It's just this little precious ring. It's just a ring and it's precious. It's just this little bitty sin and it's precious to me. Don't get in the way of that sin. Don't talk about that sin. It's precious. Do we hate it? Do we fight it? Are we at a war where it can kill me or I can kill it, but we will not live together anymore? Thirdly, do you pursue positive godliness? Oh, yeah. I'm a nice person. Oh, yeah, I just loaned my neighbor milk the other day. Do you pursue positive righteousness? How? How is God's life showing up in your life where you live right here, right now? Fight sin. Have a plan. Pursue righteousness. Have a plan for God's life to show up in your life. Grace is so much bigger and so much more amazing than it saved me. It's still saving me. It's going to save me fully and forever. That's something to celebrate. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, would you amaze us with grace again? That we might be amazed that you, the pure and holy sovereign of the universe, would look with pity and compassion on me, your enemy. Me, a sinner. And delight to make me holy. Delight to make me yours. Call me a treasure when I feel anything but a treasure. Father, would that kind of thing, would that kind of truth do something to me and to us again? That the truth of who you are and the truth of what you've done would lead to worship and obedience. Not just an amen and a church service. Oh, we want that, Father. Make us people that could be confused as zealous. Because we're zealous. We pray for that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, has the grace that's appeared in Jesus Christ become the grace that's appeared in your life? Has it saved you? If not, come, pray together. There's a white sheet in your bulletin. If you'll fill it out and say, I need to talk about this, we'd delight to talk about it with you. Just fill it out. Put it in one of the plates, hand it to somebody on the, on the way out. Right? But maybe you find yourself sitting here and sin stalled you out a little bit. Maybe you find yourself sitting here and, and you know, running after godliness. Like, you know, I'm not doing too bad, but I'm not, I'm not running anymore. And God's challenging you to run after this new life. Where is he finding you today? Where is grace finding you today? Is it finding you to save you? Where is grace finding you today? Is it, is it calling you to, to remove, to renounce, to reject these things in your life that are really specific? And you know what they are? Because they're precious. Where is grace finding you today? There's a, there's a life to run after, and Jesus is in it. Are you running after it? We're going to invite you to stand and sing and respond as the Lord is leading you in this time. Let's stand.